Welcome back to another question show. First, though, check this out. So that is the Year in Space 2018 uh, calendar. They send me a, a copy of this every, every year. It's not a paid sponsorship. They're just friends. Um, we, we have a review on Universe Today, which we'll, we'll link up, and uh, how you can buy one of your own. It's cool. Um, all right, so before we get into the questions, I have to uh, fix a mistake from last episode where we talked about virtual particles and I talked about the Casimir effect and a bunch of you rightly noted that I had it exactly backwards where the Casimir effect, which is sort of this evident that there is this vacuum energy, these virtual particles out there, and I said that they were the, the plates when you put them really close are pushing outward, it's the opposite. They're pushing inward. That essentially you've got these these wave these this vacuum energy, and you've got these various virtual particles of various wavelengths appearing, sort of in this sort of quantum. Paul Metzler does this sort of wibbly wobbly thing, sort of appearing in in space. And if you have two mirrors put very close together, the size of these virtual these fields that can appear is sort of outside can be larger than what can be inside this plate. And so you get this pressure that pushes the plates together. It's actually super interesting. And I did know this and I just like totally uh, messed it up. So I apologize to everyone and thanks to everybody for catching the mistake. I, I will make mistakes. So the problem with these QAs is I'm sort of rattling things off the top of my head and I have no idea where my brain is gonna go. And it's hard you know, to be as careful about what I do when I do these QA episodes. So. I, but I've made a mental note and so I've sort of, as I pick the questions, I sort of make sure that I sort of plan out and research a bunch of numbers. So just to make sure that I'm a little more careful in, in what I do. So thanks everyone. Unfortunately with, with YouTube, I can't put the, I can't, there's no way to put like annotations on the videos anymore. There's no way to kind of fix the video to make a correction, which is really tough. And so if anyone can think of a way to make corrections, cause I guarantee I'm gonna make mistakes again in the future that I can put a correction into the video so that at least people can know that we made a mistake and we fixed it later on. So anyway, uh, let's get on with the questions. Bernard Jordan. As space is expanding faster and faster, there will be this time, the big rip, when not even a black hole can resist the space expansion. For how long could there be black holes accounting for that factor? So the big rip is this idea, one of the implications of dark energy, right? This mysterious force that's accelerating the expansion of the universe and what it means, or so the possibility of the big rip, it sort of depends on whether the force of dark energy is increasing. Essentially, if the acceleration is increasing. So we know that the universe is being accelerated apart, and that's fine, right? But if that, the force of that acceleration is increasing, then what you're gonna get is you're gonna get, it's gonna be stronger. You can imagine sort of if there's this outward force that's in every, cubic meter of space and it's some set amount and so if you have two cubic meters of space then you're going to have you know the same amount of force but if that actual force within that cubic meter of space is increasing then you're going to get a time when for example galaxies start to get torn apart and eventually solar systems start to get torn apart and eventually planets and then black holes will eventually not be able to withstand the force of dark energy. Now, when, you know, if th this accelerating dark energy scenario is real, then when this happens depends on how this acceleration is increasing. And 
there's a couple of estimates that are out there. One says maybe 22 billion years uh, as sort of as a time based on some calculations, but really until we really can nail down just how fast the universe is expanding, we won't know. Right now, we don't even know if this, if this big rip scenario is even possible. But once, if it is, then we'll be able to calculate when the universe will tear itself apart. And eventually, yeah, black holes, atoms themselves, it'll all just come apart. And it's, again, I always sort of think this is so strange when we think about the future of the universe, 22 billion years, long after we're all gone, and yet it just, is unnerving to think that, that it will just tear itself into nothing. So anyway, sweet dreams. Ben Appleby. Is there such a thing as a binary galaxy in the same way a binary star system works? Or would all the stars from one galaxy just be pulled together with the larger galaxy into a single massive galaxy? Therefore, could Andromeda not swallow up the Milky Way, but just pull it into orbit like a moon? Thanks for your time. So when you think of binary stars, you think of these two stars that are orbiting a common center of gravity, right? So you've got two stars, same size, they're going to be orbiting around this common center of gravity. You could have a binary planet orbiting a common center of gravity, etc. But if you've got these, and so I guess what stops the stars or the planets from, from sort of getting all messed up and merged together is the binding force, the thing that's holding these planets together, the gravity that is holding, say, a rocky planet together, or the gravity that's holding a star together. And when you've got these big galaxies, they are a collection of stars held together by gravity in a halo of, of dark matter that is holding the whole thing together. And as these galaxies come together, right, they're going to get close enough that the tidal forces within are going to start tearing them apart. And and so you could absolutely have a situation where you've got two galaxies that are perfectly orbiting around each other, and they would just go around and around orbiting this common center of gravity. But that's not what you get. You've got these galaxies kind of whizzing past each other and falling inward and interacting with each other and tearing each, each other apart. So we just don't see that out there in the way that we see galaxies that are sort of in a closer um, that are merging and, and mashing into each other. So it would be possible, but you would have to set up the conditions just right, and we don't sort of see that. Deza says, if humans can't do well in low gravity, could they do better in high gravity, like on Jupiter and Saturn? Jupiter and Saturn are gas giants. So the only way you could like be on the surface of those is if you had some kind of spacecraft that was constantly thrusting against you falling into the cloud tops of, of Jupiter and Saturn. The, the four, if you could do that, then the force of gravity you'd feel on the cloud tops of Saturn is about the same as what you'd feel on Earth. It's, think about 10 meters per second squared. On Jupiter, it's about two and a half times the pull of gravity of, of what you would experience on the surface of Earth. So those are not good places to do it. But you can imagine this, a super Earth, some place that maybe has a larger volume than Earth, a larger radius, maybe it's got 1.5 times the gravity of Earth or 1.3 times the gravity of Earth. What would that do? What would that do to life? And I mean, we can see how larger and larger animals here on Earth deal with their larger mass, their larger volume. Elephants have very thick legs. Animals can be more squat. If the animal is smaller, it has sort of less pull from, from gravity, it can, it can be more kind of thinner legs. So you can imagine 
us going to some heavier world and we would have more gravity on us. We would be existing all the time in this heavier gravity. So the question is like, could human beings survive? I'm sure there's some, there's some amount of a heavier gravity where it would be super uncomfortable, but you would adjust. And I don't know what that number is. And I don't think anybody knows what that number is because we just haven't done the experiments. And then there'd be a point where your body would be breaking down. It'd be like in the death zone on Mount Everest where you're, you just, you can't be there for long, but you could be there briefly. It's like going into a high G maneuver, you know, in, on an airplane. And for a while your body can handle it and then you pass out. And then there'd be a region where it would be, it would be lethal to your body. You would, you know, the force of gravity would be so heavy, you would just kind of just fall on the ground and, and you know, you would, your body would give out. Could there be uh, multiple generations in some of those heavy worlds? Again, we don't know what is the gravity parameters that, that life can handle, and especially if it can do multiple generations. Raise your child, will they be stronger? Will they be able to handle it? These are questions that are kind of unsolved. Fortunately, it's kind of not a problem that we're going to have to deal with because we don't have any of these super Earths, any places we're going to have to really deal with much heavier gravity. But maybe our future, future descendants who travel to other worlds and they find some planet with 1.1 times Earth gravity are going to have to learn to live in a, in a higher gravity. Goran Tertange. Would all interstellar asteroids have hyperbolic orbits? Is it reasonable to think that all of them would travel at escape velocity speeds? Got a bunch of questions about Oumuamua, and I'll get into these now. So, the thing that made astronomers realize that the trajectory of Oumuamua was an interstellar asteroid was this hyperbolic trajectory, which means that it was on an escape vector away from the solar system, which means that it came in on, you know, on a vector. When you really think about it, though, it is orbiting the Milky Way. Right? It's orbiting the center of the Milky Way like all of the solar systems, and it's not sort of also trapped within the gravity well of some other solar system. So it's going to be on this hyperbolic trajectory. And if we detect more of these asteroids in the future that have this same trajectory, we know that they're, they're you know, part-time just visitors to our solar system, and then they're going to go back out into deep space. John Kelly Brown. I wonder, did Oumuamua gain speed when it passed the sun in a way that we slingshot a probe around a planet to get it going faster? I don't know if it got a, a slingshot. It definitely got a course correction to its trajectory. So perhaps, again, you know, imagine you've got the Milky Way, you've got the, whatever orbit Oumuamua was taking around the center of the Milky Way on some, some trajectory, and as it passed through the Milky Way, it got a change because it sort of got cranked around the sun and then went on a new trajectory back out into space. So you would map what it looked like before and then you could map what its new future trajectory is going to be. And it could very well be that from this point on, it's going to spend now billions of years on this new pathway until it interacts with some other star system and gets cranked into a new trajectory. And maybe eventually it'll get thrown down into the the black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. So, uh, so that's the way you would sort of describe the orbital maneuvers that happened to this place. The Siren. I watch you and John Michael Godier and, and the interstellar asteroid spacecraft. There's a possibility that it could be an alien spacecraft. Why haven't we seen a real picture of it? They say it's red and scar-shaped, but no pictures. The best telescopes that we have on Earth and in space, the biggest ones, the 10-meter telescopes, 
Hubble Space Telescope, the best any of these can do is a dot of Oumuamua. That's it. And then now, like by the time I'm recording this video, it's now so dim that not even the best telescopes can see it. So we'll never be able to see anything more for a lot of these asteroids than a single dot. How did they know that it's, you know, cigar-shaped or rendezvous with Rama-shaped? Is they watched the brightness of that dot. So the dot got brighter and dimmer and brighter and dimmer. And then from that, they could sort of measure and estimate what the shape of the object would be and sort of what the overall color was going to be. But until we can send a spacecraft there up close, which is sort of what we talked about in that episode, we don't know what it looks like exactly. It's just a, it's just a guess. And so all of these pictures that you've seen is just an artist illustration of what it might look like, but it most likely looks totally different, but that it happens to have that kind of length to width ratio. We, by the time I'm recording this, the Breakthrough Listen project tried turning the Green Bank telescope at the at Oumuamua, and it wasn't able to detect any signals from it. So it's not a transmitting spacecraft. And if you were on Oumuamua and you just had your cell phone and you were talking on your cell phone, it could hear you. So that's the sensitivity of the radio telescope that was recently pointed at it. So it's just a space rock. Ronit Sarkar. Hey Fraser, hoping this makes your QA videos time. Light moves at light speed regardless to the observer. So the observer remains motionless or in motion. So would a single photon running in the same direction look like to an electron moving at 99.99 light speed? Will the electron still see the photon pass by it running at the speed of light? Yes. You always see light moving at the speed of light, even if you're going 99.9999999% the speed of light. Even though you're almost going the speed of light and you shine a flashlight, that light is going to move away from you at the speed of light. And this is the whole point, right? Because here on Earth, that is not our experience. If I'm driving down the road at a certain speed and I, you know, throw something and someone watches it, they see the relative speeds of all of this. But light moves at light speed. And this was the insight that Einstein had. And, and the implications of that are time dilation and, the, and all of the things that happens with relativity to make light speed always appear to be moving at the speed of light. Maz Oler, I'm wondering if we could solve the low gravity issue by artificially making our bodies heavier. In other words, wouldn't a suit that would make your weight as much as it would on Earth at least keep your muscles strong? Obviously not blood or body fluids, but it would be better than nothing, I guess, without even work. I think that would be a good start, that if you were, say, on Mars or the moon, maybe you would wear some kind of spacesuit that's got enough mass in it, like lead or something, that would, that would give you, a, you know, a, would pull you down with more gravity and would help to counteract the, the atrophy that you're going to get from your muscles and sort of the softening and the weakening of your bones. You can't do that in microgravity, though. If you're floating in space, no amount of a suit is going to allow you to experience any weight because there's, you're not experiencing any gravity at all. Uh, but as you said, right, the question, the other part is that we don't know what happens to the internal organs. We don't know what happens to your blood pressure and to your heart and things like that over prolonged periods of time. So these are experiments that must be done. We have to figure this out. And 
until we start to have longer and longer duration space flight, until we start to experiment with modifying the, the force of gravity using some kind of rotation, we're just not going to know what living creatures can survive in space. We need to define those parameters so that we can then really have a much better sense of what's possible as we try to explore the solar system. Stefan Alti Torvaldsen. What happens if you get sick on the International Space Station? Astronauts, especially people when they first arrive in space, often get sick. They often get nausea and they vomit. And the way they deal with that is they have really fancy barf bags. So, and they're all over the place. And so an astronaut at any time can grab a barf bag, open it up, vomit into it. You know, they can wipe their face to clean themselves up and then They've got a bag of vomit, and the problem is they have to, you know, leave it there on the space station. And so they they pack that away into the the garbage vehicle, which eventually gets, uh, you know, they have these progress uh, cargo spacecraft, and so they'll take all their trash, they'll put it into that, and eventually it will detach from the space station and re-enter the atmosphere and burn up, and that's how they how they get rid of it. If they fail to catch it then they're going to get these little blobs of vomit that will float around the station. And it's apparently very gross, and they, it's a thing they really want to avoid. I was just reading this, uh, this great book by Scott Kelly about what it's like to live on the space station, and he says it all the time little bits of garbage and stuff is just floating around the space station because there's no gravity, there's no dusting, you know, dust doesn't collect on the ground on, on things, on surfaces, it all just floats around. Things dislodge and go past your eyes and so they're constantly dealing with this dust and junk that, that collects around, just floats around in space on the space station. Metal Fox. I watched your videos while playing games recently and I was playing Warframe and on Venus there was snow. Could you explain what we would have to do to make it a white Christmas on Venus? So the average temperature on Venus is about 462 degrees Celsius, so it's very hot. And in order to make it snow, which is possible, you would have to put some kind of sunshade in front of Venus to totally block the sunlight falling on Venus. You would then start cooling down the planet. You could cool it down to say room temperature, but that wouldn't make you the snow. You'd want to cool it down to about minus 55 degrees, which is the temperature that carbon dioxide freezes. And so what you would do is you would get it down below that temperature and the carbon dioxide, which is like, you know, 90 atmospheres worth of carbon dioxide. So when you're on Venus, you're experiencing 90 times the atmospheric pressure than you do here on Earth, and that's carbon dioxide. It would, it would snow out, and so it would just and collect on the surface of Venus. And so if you just kept that sunshade and just kept blocking it, Venus would just get cooler and cooler and cooler, and eventually it would, you would have snow on Venus. And actually that would be the first step to actually terraforming Venus, because then you would either bury all that carbon dioxide, or you would scoop it up and take it to another planet, or do something with it to lock it away to then make Venus more habitable. Red Shop, one, two, three, four. I'd like to see actual photographic evidence of a spacecraft in space, not a CGI image or an artist's impression. All I get from Google Images when I type in photo of spacecraft in space are CGI images, not photographs. You're not even showing video footage from the Van Allen probes. If NASA had such footage in its possession, surely they would provide it since they're all about science, right? So think about a spacecraft, right? The spacecraft is launched, it's going tens of thousands of kilometers per hour, it doesn't have a selfie stick. 
So there's no way that a spacecraft can take a picture of itself, right? You need to have another spacecraft that's beside it that's going to be able to take a picture. And even if these spacecraft are separated by tens of kilometers, then there's just going to be a little dot, and you're not going to be impressed by a little dot. Now, there are a couple of amazing pictures. So we're going to put up a couple of pictures that I think I think are mind-blowing. You think are fake, but I think are mind-blowing. One is a picture of when NASA's Curiosity rover landed on Mars. NASA controllers organized to get the Mars reconnaissance over flying overhead, and they took a picture of Curiosity landing. You can see like the parachute coming behind the rover just minutes before it landed, which is just amazing. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has been able to image the, the spirit and opportunity from above and, and curiosity and can actually see it and see the tracks of the rover as it's moving across the surface of the planet. Uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been able to image all of the Apollo landing sites, which is really amazing. And then the other thing that you can do is from here on Earth, you can take a telescope, you can point it at the sky, and you can take pictures of many of the satellites that go overhead. You can produce amazing pictures of the International Space Station. Even like the little cargo vehicles that are, that are docking as they're undocking from the space station, you can take pictures. You can do this of these spacecraft in space, and then you can show yourself pictures that you took of spacecraft in space, which is amazing. So yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the really nice artist, artistic renderings that you've seen, those are artistic renderings because those spacecraft don't have selfie sticks. But there are lots of ways that you can take pictures of spacecraft in space. I hope that helps. I hope you're convinced. All right, another question show, all done. As always, wherever you are, anywhere on the channel, if you've got a question, just type it in and I will gather them up and answer them here. Now remember, I've got an announcement email mailing list, so I'll put the, the URL here and we'll put it down in the show notes. So if you wanna be informed when we've got new episodes, we'll let you know. And there was one more thing. Oh yeah, playlist. I've uh, updated the playlist of the stuff that I've been recently watching, so check it out here.